So Trent, what have you been eating? Um, uh, after work, uh, me and my coworker got Greek food. We had baklava and uh, and uh, falafel gyros, and apparently Greek French fries, which are just French fries with like cheese on them. But that doesn't sound particularly Greek. That just sounds like a universal delicacy. So. False advertising there, but no complaints. It doesn't seem really ethnically accurate, but it does no, sound I, good. I wasn't in a position to ask questions. I was neck deep in French fries and cheese, so I was uh, occupied. Um, what about you? Um, as I believe I said on a previous podcast, I've been having lots of pizza as my father um, has oh, a new pizza, pizza oven, oven. Pizza oven, pizza oven. Exactly. So we he made garlic bread, too, today. Does he love his new pizza oven? I could see your father being enthusiastic about that sort of thing. He absolutely loves it. It is he he likes it more than either of his children. He doesn't speak to us anymore. Well, yeah, he's uh he's got his priorities straight. Can it only be used for pizza? How hot does it get? No, I mean it, it's it's an oven. It, so you can you can make bread in is it. Is it indoors uh, or outdoors? Uh we have it outdoors. Hmm. It, could it be seasonally relocated? Um. Yes, but like if I think we're gonna keep to it in the same spot. Yeah, I mean you could move it just but for like, continuity. I, yeah, and um, yeah, but it can get up to. I don't know what it can get up to, but we have it at like nine hundred degrees, so it cooks what, stuff what really powers quickly. It? Is it wood burning? Uh, it it can be a few things. You can do it on um like a what normal like gas tank. Prefer? Well, we we've been at first we did it with a gas tank, and then now we use charcoal or like not charcoal, like just coal. Yeah. Um, and you can also use like wood burning, so you can you can use a few different methods, but um, it's good we that use you're using coal. that fossil fuel. It's, no, CO two is great for the atmosphere. We like to support our local coal miners. Yeah. Uh, touchy subject, Parth. Anyways, Trent, you told me you had some funny story to tell me on our private lines yeah, of communication. Uh, something weird happened at work yesterday, and I wanted to tell Parth, but I thought it would be better to do it live on the airwaves so uh, his his response would be genuine and we wouldn't have to re- recreate it for this exact moment. So, Parth, let me set the scene. Please. Uh, I'm at work, and have you seen The Shining, the movie? I have not. Oh well, awkward. Well, I'm. But I I know like most things. Like I know everything about it, other than having watched it. This is gonna take away a little. So, okay, are you aware of the scene where there's a naked lady? Does that ring a bell? Yes. Okay, so there's this. For the viewers at home, there's this naked lady. Jack Nicholson walks into room two three seven, and there she is sitting in the bathtub, and he gets infatuated with her, and they go and they kiss, and uh, then she turns into a monster. And then he gets scared and he runs away. Um, but in the meantime, she's like sitting in the bathtub, fully nude as one does, and then stands up and, uh, you know, like breasts and genitals and all. And so it just looks, it looks kind of like a, a porno. I mean, just from an objective standpoint, like it's a nude person. And so I'm at work and it's on the TV. And since I was just flipping through the channels and stumbled upon it, it was on cable. I figured it would be like edited for content. Um, but for whatever reason, it, it it was fully explicit, which didn't make sense to me because that shouldn't be accessible to the general public. But so I'm sitting there expecting it to be blurred out. And so it just me and my boss... Uh, in the middle of the night amidst uh, i don't know business hours and so uh then this family walks by and they're clearly like uptight and they have like seven kids so probably religious because they don't believe in contraceptions and they and so they walk by and see what's on the television and they clearly don't recognize that it's like a cinematic experience and they just think these two dudes are like watching porn like together as a group and so he like presses up against he puts his his seven kids away and he like comes up to the glass and he starts like motioning at us because he's like upset that we're watching porn in public and then we were um like trying to communicate with him that it wasn't porn and that it was just like you know a stanley kubrick like 
movie and we agreed to disagree and then he left because he thought that we were like creeps was that worth your while <laughs> i mean um, the miscommunication was kind of funny i it was a lot of build up but um it was a worthwhile payoff i'd hate to disappoint you no 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 of course you trent there is nothing in the world you could do to ever disappoint me. It was related to movies, so it's topical to the podcast, and you know, it was a recent event. It happened just yesterday, and uh, I thought you'd like to hear about my uh, my current events. You like to stay updated on my whereabouts and uh, yeah, all that. So uh, let's the show now. It's time. Yes, shall we cue the intro? Welcome back to Craft Services, where we talk about movies. Each week we discuss a different film and hopefully have an interview with a crew member of that film to talk with us about their experience. This week we're going to be talking with Birds of Prey or the Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn. And with us we have one of its editors, Evan Schiff. You talked so fast. Mm-hmm. That was impressive. Thank you. Trent, do you want to give us what the synopsis of this movie is? After splitting with the Joker, Harley Quinn joins superheroes Black Canary Huntress and Renee Montoya to save a young girl from an evil crime lord. I think it's weird that they describe them as superheroes. If anything, aren't they like antiheroes? Or... Yeah, I would say they're more anti-heroes. They're not really super anti-heroes either. They're just kind of, I mean, I guess other than Black Canary, who for the most part doesn't use superpowers. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, I understand there's uh, exceptions, such as Batman being a superhero and not possessing powers, but it seems like to use that as a blanket term and then for none of them to really qualify, like, all of them are kind of just normal people. Trent, are are, are we saying we're anti-women in superhero films? Um, no comment. But it in the Batman universe especially, like, don't none of the supervillains really have superpowers? That's not really true. There's, there's like Killer Croc. There's or Poison Ivy. Poison Ivy. I guess there's, there's some Mr. that are more Freeze. supernatural. I feel like I hear a scientific argument for the existence of Mister Freeze, but like no one's saying that the Riddler or Two Face or Joker or Penguin yeah, have any that, sort of that's powers. Fair. I would say I would say the main Two Face, Joker, oh, Scarecrow, Riddler, a good Scarecrow are all kind of yeah reality based. That's fair. All right, well, um, we had an interview, did we not, with uh, a one Evan Schiff? See what I did there? I, Oh, wow. That was a really good segue, Trent. I think we should leave them to you next time, like in the future. Yeah, we best. Okay, so t- tell us about this interview. Wasn't it swell? It was fantabulous, if you will. Excuse the <sighs> Damn. pun. Damn, w- wordplay. Thank you. Evan Schiff was a wonderful guest man he talks and mentor about many films he's at a long distinct filmography and as you'll hear so enjoy the show Hello, everybody, and welcome to our interview with Evan Schiff. He's the genius editor who's worked on such films as Star Trek Into Darkness, Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, John Wick, Chapters 2 and 3, and our topic for today, Harley Quinn, Birds of Prey, or Birds of Prey, The Fantabulous Emancipation of One Harley Quinn, whichever the title of the movie is. Um, but um, thank you so much for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. So um, we generally like to ask our guests, uh, what got you interested in film? Uh, I originally wanted to do special effects. Um, I have some family members that uh, work at Stan Winston Studio and have worked at Stan Winston Studio for decades now, and um, including legacy effects, legacy effects, which is what Stan Winston Studio became after he died. Um, so anyway, I uh, when I came out to visit family, because I'm originally from Syracuse, but I have a bunch of family here in LA. So when I would come out to visit them, uh, I got a tour of Stan Winston Studio, and that was sort of the first like inkling that I had that you could work in movies as like a career 
you know, that it was like these movies didn't just appear, people made them and there were jobs that were associated with that. Um, and so that, that piqued my interest. And, uh, you know, from there it was like, okay, well, what's, what's a good uh, path to try to follow and not really knowing anything, you know, about it. Uh, I, I started researching the USC film program uh, and that's where I got in. And then, um, career started from there yeah i was just gonna ask uh what your time at uc at usc film school was like because notoriously like steven spielberg went there and it it's one of the best film programs in the country so i'm sure that that was strenuous and also a very positive experience yeah i mean going it's i don't know if strenuous it's fun you know it's like it's if you like making movies and you like, you know, spending the hours that it takes, um, it's not, you know, it's not hard. Um, there are aspects of it that, uh, you know, that are emotionally challenging. Like there's a class there's, if you're, if you are a production major at USC, there are three main film production classes that you are required to take, you know, sort of beginner, intermediate and advanced. And the beginner one, um, they don't really tell you this, but if you talk to people who have gone through the program before, you know, I think everybody's pretty much in agreement that the beginner one, the point of it is not to make good short films. The point of it is to build up your wall um, because you go into this classroom with your, you do like one short film every three weeks and you come in and you show it to the rest of the class and the rest of the class in their critique is brutal. Um, So, you know, you, you, by the, end of that class you walk out of there I, I feel like at least going like okay that was rough my films are terrible everybody hated them and they told me that to my face but now I can take criticism uh, and I think that becomes really important later on in your career um, you know it, it's it's a skill that I definitely I know I needed to work on uh, when I was first starting to edit you know and having people critique my, my actual like professional edits um, but getting that that beginner experience at, at USC of like having people just absolutely tear you to shreds uh you know that was strenuous uh, and useful but the rest of it is like you know you're you're hanging out with your friends you're making movies you're you know you're you're in LA so you've got all of that around you and some of the opportunities that that provides to like meet professional filmmakers um you know so it's it's fun I had I had a great time uh, at SC and uh you know I'm I'm I still keep in touch with a lot of people that I went to film school with. This goes back a little bit further, but did you learn to edit on film or have you only ever like worked digitally? I have only ever worked on film at USC. Um, I did a little bit of tape to tape editing when I was in high school. And then when I got to SC, there was sort of a mixture, uh, like the beginner class I was talking about was all digital Um which was fairly recently at that time, uh, you know, converted into a digital class. Um, I was at USC from 2000 to 2004. Um, then the intermediate class was all film, and we were the last semester to do our both our picture and our sound on film. So we had 16 millimeter black and white that we were cutting on a flatbed, and we had, um, we you know we had if we wanted sound, we had to transfer it to mag tape and then cut that on the flatbed also. Um, and then the semester after us of that class switched to Pro Tools uh, for their sound. So then they started doing a sort of a hybrid model. And then um, the advanced class, we went through more of a professional like telecine process. We cut an Avid, and then we had to conform our work print to the you know to what we um, to the cut list that we generated in Avid. Uh, and then screen the actual film print. So that was also like a a, a little bit of a, a trial um when you go to the screening and everybody's putting their films up on their projectors which are not forgiving you know and in the middle of your film the like you have a bad splice and the film rips apart um so uh, there i guess there was nothing that i did at sc that was entirely like digital from start to finish except for that beginning class um and as i mentioned that beginning class is not really meant to you're not really meant to like make films that you're going to send anybody else that's interesting um we've only ever worked on adobe premiere so um we don't have the experience you do but um just speaking on editing um most people that go to film school end up wanting to write and direct and you obviously went into editing 
and you spoke about how you first wanted to go into special effects. And we were wondering what your time at the Stan Winston studio was like and how you went from that to editing. Um, yeah, so I think actually one of the things that helped me get into USC film school was telling them in my interview that I didn't want to direct um, because obviously they get a lot of people that show up and they're like, what do you want to do? And they're like, I want to direct. And, you know, that's great. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. But the, you know, the film school, I think, was interested and probably still is in acquiring a diverse group of students who want different things. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. They don't tell you why you got in. But from, you know, for me, I feel like uh, telling them that I didn't want to direct, you know, might have been a check in the, you know, corner of let's let him into the school. Um you know, so I, my journey at San Winston's was um, through the family members I mentioned, I got uh, an internship between my junior and senior year of high school. Um, and I, they put me in the electronics department uh, under a guy named Glenn Derry, who is just a genius. Um, and I learned a lot from him that summer, uh, things that were way, way above and beyond, you know, my level of education at the time. Um, but I I also, because I'm a fairly techie guy, I also um, spent the summer making them a, a like a parts inventorying system in Microsoft Access. And Stan ended up seeing that during one of the company all hands and then like on the spot offered me a job, um, which I deferred a year until I was coming out to L.A. to go to college. So by the time that I was, I graduated high school, you know, a year after that, uh, I... 10 days after I graduated, I moved out to LA and started my job at Stan Winston's, which I had for five years. Um, from then on, I went, it was sort of my college job for all four years. And then I went full-time for one year afterwards. To, um, to be clear, this is Stan Winston of Stan Winston Studios that offered you the job? Yes. <laughs> um, Stan, Stan's great. Stan, Stan was, you know, was an amazing, a very charismatic and very smart guy. Uh, and, you know, I enjoyed every like every day of going into work, it, you know, you have to sort of pinch yourself, be like, this is where I work. And these are the people that I'm working with. It's, you know, it was great. Um, and then two years in my like sophomore year at SC, they, Stan was interested in starting a visual effects division inside the studio. Um, and they had actually, they had an Avid that was in a room that like barely anybody went in. They didn't know how to use it. The Avids were super expensive at the time, like $30,000 or something like that. Um, and so when they started, they would use them to like make demo reels and things like that, but they didn't really have anybody full-time who would do that. And when they started the visual effects division, they realized that they needed somebody who was there all the time to run the Avid for cutting in shots that the digital division was making to, in order to make sure that they, you know, that they lined up with the edit of the movie that they were working on. Um, and so I volunteered for that because I had a little bit of experience in Avid and nobody else in the studio did. Um, and they were like, sure. You know, it wasn't a full-time, my primary responsibilities at Stan Winston were tech support and like, you know, network administration. Um, and uh, they were basically like, as, you know, as long as you can add those responsibilities to your workload, um, we're cool with that. Uh, and that was generally how they worked. Like if I finished my day and I wanted to go see what the people, you know, in hair and makeup were doing, like there was, there was no pushback against like visiting other departments and having them show you what they were doing. Um, so anyway, so yeah, I became the, the network administrator slash visual effects editor uh, around my sophomore year of college. And then um, that was around the same time as that beginner class at SC where because you're making one short film every three weeks there have, and you have to write it and direct it and shoot it and find actor, you're doing everything yourself. Um, and that, so that coincided with me figuring out that I really actually liked cutting my short films much more than I liked doing a lot of the other parts of the process. Um, and so I, when I was taking that class, that's when I was like, I think I'm going to focus on editing, you know, and this, opportunity at San Winston just sort of appeared magically, uh, you know, and then I, I pursued editing from then on. So by the time that I graduated from college um, and within a year, you know, my last, my last year of work at Stan Winston um, helped me get into the Editor's Guild 
And then from there on, I was able to go look for production side jobs, like in the actual editorial department, as opposed to in the visual effects department. So this is a little bit of a pivot, but just talking about our main topic for the day, how did you get involved with Birds of Prey? Uh, Birds of Prey came about because they there were some uh, reshoots that they were doing um, regarding the action scenes, um, which is pretty typical. Uh, and um, a lot of the, you know, the, my director from John Wick was involved sort of consulting um, and helping design the sequence in his company, 8711, had done the original um, action shoots during principal photography. And so um, he asked Warner Brothers if they could uh, bring me on for those reshoots. Uh, and then, you know, so that I could take a look and I could cut those action scenes. Um, and then I hit it off with Warner Brothers pretty well. And they just, they asked me to stay on until the end of the film. Um, so is that something that's sort of common within the industry of having another editor uh, come on for reshoots that, I mean, obviously reshoots happen with big budget movies, but like do editors sort of come and go? Um, editors come and go. Yeah, it, it's normal for editors to come and go for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, if the like on John Wick 3, I had, um, I had two co-editors that were on at different times. Um, because it just the workload got so intense and the schedule was short. Um, and you know, I especially as I get older and I have kids and things like that, I am becoming more aware of trying to keep my work life balance. And um, for me at least, uh, bringing on another editor to help out is not a sign of weakness or a sign that there's something wrong, but is actually a savior for my general, you know, personal life. Um, and I don't get precious about, uh, you know, about who cut what. Um, so yeah, I mean, editors come and come on and they leave for different reasons, um, all the time on all sorts of types of movies. Um, so this was not unusual in any way. So as like the lead editor, like, could you do it all yourself if you really wanted to? And it's just like getting assistant editors, like for your own like sanity and well-being in this case but like if you were dead set on it you could edit a movie start to finish as far as the studio is concerned i mean it's it's always a negotiation if the studio feels like you need help um you know they might hire another editor because you know to sort of save you from yourself um the majority of the movies that i've cut i've done on my own john mc2 you know i did on my own um john mc3 i had help birds of prey i had help um and I was help on Birds of Prey. Um, you know, it's, uh, I feel like if you are insisting on cutting it yourself, even when the workload is just, you know, drowning you in footage or you just clearly don't have enough time, then you're not doing yourself or the film any favors. Um, so you could try to resist bringing help on, um, but you probably wouldn't be very successful at it. This, it tends to be that once the idea of bringing on another editor has been, uh, you know, has been brought up, uh, people don't tend to let it go. Um, because if it's being brought up in the first place, then there's generally a reason for it. Um, well, just backtracking just a little bit, um, since you were brought on to Birds of Prey through your connection with Chad Stahelski, um, how did you end up getting involved with John Wick chapter two and three? And what was that experience like? So that I was, uh, I'm repped at the United Talent, Talent Agency and um, I was working on this small indie romance about Barack and Michelle Obama's first date called Southside with You. Uh, and my agent called and was like, hey, there's an opening on John Wick 2. Do you want us to put you up for it? And I was like, sure who does anybody say no to that <laughs> um and you know which is like for me i i that was john mc2 was my first studio like big studio movie that i cut um so it was a little bit of a leap of faith for my agents to sell me to chad and to the producers um and you know i'm grateful to everybody involved chad will tell you that he always likes to look for what he calls the the person behind the person. So like, you know, instead of getting the absolute A-list, you know, production designer, who's, who's the person who's actually like that, the like right-hand man of that person, you know? And like, 
Um, so he, and I think that comes from being, spending much of his career as a second unit director and a stunt coordinator, you know, somebody had to give him a break to shoot John Wick one or to direct John Wick one. So, um, you know, he recognizes that, that like there are plenty of talented people out there and they just need the opportunity to prove that. Um, so they put, so UTA sent my resume and name to Chad and the producers of, uh, John Wick two and Lionsgate. Uh, I had a phone interview with Chad uh, on the first day of production. And by then by the time that I heard that I'd gotten the job, um, they had already shot for like 10 or 11 days. And so by the time I actually got into an edit room in New York, because um, I had to fly there with my family and my, my at that time, like three month old daughter, um, uh, they were, had already shot for two weeks. Uh, which is not a great position to be in when nobody, when you're like a new editor in a new situation with a new director and new producers and you're coming in uh, through no fault of your own two weeks behind, you know, I felt a lot of pressure uh, to perform and, you know, thankfully it all worked out and they sort of left me alone during production to just catch up on dailies. Nobody really came in and, and asked to see very much. Um, but there was within the first week or so, there was a second unit car shoot that the second unit director came in to work with me on. And I learned after the fact that that was their, that was their, their probation period where they, they grilled the second unit director after he had worked with me to see what he thought. And if that had not gone well, um, you know, they might've switched me up for somebody else. Um, so just a small question. You worked on the Obama thing. Uh, is it true that they saw um, do the right thing on their first date? That's I read that somewhere. I think it is true. You know, it, it's been a few years now. I forget the details of what was true and what wasn't. I know that Rich, the director, um, you know, he, he did a lot of research to what their first date was um, and the types of things that they did and, and you know, sort of invented what they might have talked about. Um, so there's a very, there's like a lot of things that are influenced by interviews that they gave. Um, but I think Do the Right Thing was, and I think that was an actual event that happened happened if i remember right i just wanted to fact check that but more importantly um as oh, man, i'm not i'm not entirely sure but um I, I believe so um so what is the editor's relationship with the director typically and what was it like on birds of prey in particular um the editor's relationship with the director is a it's a very personal one um you know, you are in working in a room with your director for, you know, 12 hours a day, sometimes every day, sometimes six or seven, you know, days per week. Um, everybody forms their own relationship. So, I, you know, I've got, I've worked with a bunch of different directors. I have different types of relationships with all of them. Um, you know, I think above all, you need to be open and honest because editorial needs to be the place where, you can filter out all of the like politics and the drama and the things that are happening outside, you know, of your office and just focus on what is the best for the movie in this particular moment. Um, and in order to, to have those conversations, you have to not hold back, you know, like I don't, um, if, if I think that there, that we've made a mistake or there is something that's hurting the film, um, I will bring that up, you know, quite candidly. Um, you know, but then the, the tricky part becomes, you have to be aware of, uh, you know, when you've pushed your opinion up to the, you know, up to the ledge, <laughs> so to speak. Um, because at the end of the day, it's not my job to override the director. It's my job to help them make the best film that I, you know, possible and to help them achieve their vision. So oftentimes if I'm arguing for something and I get overruled, you know, I might bring it up a couple more times if an opportunity presents itself. Um, but at the end of the day, if I say, I think we should do this. And the director says, no, we're going to do that. Then you're like, okay, let me make the best version of that, that I, you know, that I can. Um, coming on to Birds of Prey, uh, you know, partway through post, um, you know, I, I ended up the way I'll backtrack a little bit. The way that these big movies work uh, is that um, you, the director has a 10 week period um, after shooting ends where they 
are allowed to make the movie, you know, their version of the movie, essentially. So when you hear director's cut, that's what that means. It's the, the state that the movie is in at the end of those 10 weeks. And, and within those 10 weeks, um, you know, you're, you're pretty much left alone. Um, sometimes you can, you know, there, there are exceptions to that. But for the most part, those 10 weeks are, are sort of sacred, and it's time for the director and the editor to cut. So I came on after that which means that by the time that I came on, the studio had already seen and weighed in on the movie um, and was involved, producers were involved. And so, um, you know, that situation was a little bit different from normal just because at that point I am, when I'm going in a room to cut, I'm actually going in a room to cut with a lot of people. Um, it's not just the director, it's, the, it's you know, everybody that I just mentioned. Um, and everybody is seeing those cuts and everybody is weighing in on them and you get 10 sets of notes instead of one set of notes. Um, and any major decision goes, you know, all the way up the decision tree until it's either mutually agreed upon by everybody or, you know, decided and, and or somebody, you know, decides who can't be overruled. Um, so, uh, you know, so that one, that one was a little bit different in, in terms of... Um, in terms of workflow, but, you know, I think it worked out in the end. So when you're editing with a room full of people, is it just like you at the computer, like uh, operating and everyone else seated behind you, they, like yelling criticism or praise or telling you when to stop or when to cut? Um, thankfully, in, in this layout, they're actually seated in front of me. Uh, we, I had my desk and then, then in front of the Avid was the couch and in front of that was a TV that we were all looking at, um, which I actually like because then nobody's really looking over my shoulder. Um, but you know, it's, a lot of it is discussion. So you're like, I wonder what would happen if we, you know, moved this scene there and, you know, if it's a quick change, I'll do it in the room so everybody can see it. And those types of, you know, things tend to be like things that I can do right then and there in the room. It tends to be very obvious when you play it, whether or not it works. Um, so it doesn't tend to be a lot of like, I make a change and then one person is vehemently for it and one person is vehemently against it. You know, it tends to be like, oh yeah, that's better. Or, yeah, that's not not so good. Um, the rest of the time when I'm cutting in the room, at least the way that I like to cut and the way that this thankfully sort of worked out is that that conversation leads to an, you know, an action list of like, okay, these are the what we think are the current problems with the film here is one way that we'd like to see if, you know, some, here's a list of solutions that we hope will work, you know, whether it's, you know, move this scene there, cut that out, you know, try to like make this, make this plot point more clear, um, you know, try to like pace up this section a little bit, whatever those notes are, you know, I'll, that'll all be decided on during the conversation, then everybody will leave and I get to do that stuff on my own. Um, and I prefer that because when you are working on your own, I find you tend to discover more creative solutions to things than if you're simply going down a list while everybody is watching over your shoulder. Um, when you're doing that, it's like, it, it might work, it might not, you know, it's like, it, it, you know, does the group think, you know, is it effective? Does it, like, it, the chance that, that they've come upon the exact right answer during the group conversation um, is low compared to like, they might be circling the, the right answer, but if I'm left alone, to figure out what actually works the best. Um, and I don't have that time pressure of like people waiting and, you know, waiting for me to hit play, then, um, you know, I think the end result is, is better. So that I prefer where it's like, I, everybody talks, I hear the conversation, I understand what they're looking for. And then it becomes, you know, up to me as the, you know, as the editor and the creative, you know, person who is executing these notes to figure out what actually is the best, like way to solve the problem. Um, and tackle the, you know, and tackle the note or the feeling that the uh, the group conversation left us with. Um, well, uh, talking about your editing process, um, Birds of Prey, John Wick 2 and 3 are very action-oriented movies. And we were wondering if there's a specific way that you like to approach editing action sequences or if it's just like any other scene um, in terms of your process going forward. Um. I mean, so much of editing, whether it's action or dialogue or montages or, you know, whatever is, is it's intuition, you know, and it's your own personal timing, you know, like your internal clock is going. And so when you're watching a cut, you know, some things feel right and they feel wrong or a shot feels too short or it feels too long or it feels like there's too many shots in a row. Um, or sometimes it feels like there's too many shots of the exact same length in a row. I mean, all these sort of these things 
they stick out to you and probably to you alone initially. Um, so, you know, th there are some constraints that cutting action adds because of the way that they have to shoot it. Action is shot in generally smaller chunks than dialogue. Um, you know, so you don't, you aren't tiring out the actors doing, you know, an insane amount of choreography in one take, you know, that should be divided up into smaller sections that they can do more easily. Um, you know, because if you're doing these super, super long takes and somebody screws up at the end, you've got to go back to the beginning, you know, and I say that with full knowledge of John Wick is known for having these super long takes. Um, but those are very, very meticulously designed to have cut points, you know, so that the, the run of moves is not, you're not transitioning from, you know, uh, from one move to another in a way that is, um, you know, that, that is, uh, badly designed or that it, that it, you know, is that going to have you contorting your body in some weird way, you know, so there are still cut points designed in the action there. Um, whereas dialogue, you know, you could have a eight minute take of dialogue if the actors are, you know, are really in it. And even if they screw up, then they just sort of reset and they keep going, you know, without cutting camera. So at that point it become, you know, your edit choices become much more, um, you know, much more infinite uh, in that, like, you can, it's really up to you at that point to figure out what is the pace of the edit in, you know, in a dialogue scene. Um, you know, I, I have thoughts about cutting action um, and certainly preferences for what I think works and looks better and is more, um, uh, you know, is less visually confusing to an audience. Um, but the other thing with action is that it is entirely dependent on you know the talent and the preparation and the rehearsal and the execution and the cinematography and like all these things that go into getting those dailies um and so sometimes you don't have the same you don't have the choices that you wish you'd had if you if you are getting action that isn't shot well um and that's why you might end up with cuttier action than even you want if you have to fix mistakes you know i'm i'm very thankful that you know on the wick movies and on birds of prey um, pretty much anything that, you know, Chad has his hand in, you don't really get bad action footage. So that frees you to, you know, to cut the scene in the way that you want to cut it rather than cutting it to hide a problem. Um, that's great. Um, we were wondering how it is to um, work on a, on a film without a finished script. As I understand it, John Wick 2 and 3's endings weren't fully set in stone. Um, and so I was wondering if that sort of, changes anything on the editing end or if you're just sort of at the whim of whatever happens uh so john wick 2's ending is as it was scripted and shot um the things that we reshot in john wick 2 were for problems that came up um that and those those were sort of in the middle sort of between the like act two and act three areas and a little bit in the beginning um john wick 3 uh, it had an ending and it didn't, it didn't end up working as well as, you know, as everybody had hoped and then sort of as well as it read on the page. Um, and so that one, it wasn't that we didn't have an ending so much as that we just, we realized that we needed a different one. Um, and, you know, and then there was a lot of discussion about what that different one should be. Um, so we went back for just a one day reshoot, you know, to get the Lawrence Fishburne scene. Um, but you know, the, I think the challenge of being an editor is just, it doesn't really matter what they wrote or what they intended um, or what was planned. The only thing that matters is the dailies that you actually get um, and what you can make with them. And so, yeah, I mean, sometimes it's challenging if you, like, if they didn't make their day, like, I mean, so they didn't finish shooting everything that they wanted to shoot that day and have to move on, you know, you might not be able to make something out of it. Um, you know, and a couple of the things that we reshot in Wick Two uh, were because we didn't make our, you know, we didn't make our days a couple times in Italy, you know, and that left me with like three quarters of a fight scene, you know. So like, it's frustrating, but there's also like, it's not my, you know, it's not on me. If there, if the fight scene doesn't end because I don't have the footage, it it just doesn't end, and we've got to, you know, as a team, figure out a solution to that. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, it can be it can be frustrating. Uh, if you don't get the material that you think or are hoping you're going to get. Um, I, I also try not to Monday morning quarterback because it, it's really hard to be a director and to be on set and to have all these things 
go wrong that you can't anticipate. Um, you know, there, there's always something that goes wrong, some location that falls through or some like, you know, noise problem you didn't anticipate because you scouted it on a weekend when there was no traffic and then you shot on a Tuesday and all of a sudden it's rush hour. Like, you know, those things, the, like the practical world inserts itself into your best laid plans at every opportunity. Um, and so you just sort of got to roll with it. There, there's a quote um, by like Chris McQuarrie, which is that pre-production is the movie you want to make. Production is the movie you think you're making and post is the movie you actually made. So yeah. it's like the screenplay is never actually done being written. The the nope. edit is the third draft, essentially. Yeah. Yes. And, and we editors do, um, you know, we do a lot of writing. We, we write, you know, we write ADR lines for people. We like, we... You know, we're in those rooms as reshoots are being discussed as to, okay, what do, you know, what do we need to get ourselves from, we have a gap between A and D in the story. How do we, you know, fill, fill through, you know, B and C. And so, um, you know, it, yeah, it definitely flexes a lot of muscles, you know, being an editor and being responsible for trying to come out of this process with something that feels cohesive and complete. So we were looking at your IMDb and we were just stunned by the amount of movies we like that you've worked on. And one of the notable ones I had a question on was you're involved, you're credited as production support on Star Wars, The Force Awakens. <laughs> and we were just wondering what it was like to work on a Star Wars movie, because isn't that every kid's dream? Uh, it's yeah, I, I think I worked on on Force Awakens in probably the best way possible, which was um just enough to like to have worked on it you know to say that i worked on it and to have seen the movie you know multiple times before it released but not enough where i got like burned out or was hitting the end of the project being like i never want to see this movie again um you know which does happen after you've worked on a movie for a year you're just like the movie comes out and you're like okay well i'll never watch that again um but you know so yeah i i Working on that was definitely, a, you know, a, a dream come true to like be inside Bad Robot and to be helping them out. Um, you know, I just, I was, I, I worked for like a week here and there um, uh, to to uh, consult with um, their like temp sound mixing process, um, you know, as they were getting ready for screenings. And, uh, you know, that was great. Uh, I have, I don't know if you've seen, but I, ha I have, there's a, a story I told on Twitter, um, I don't know, a month or two ago. And uh, it was my first day coming into Bad Robot to work on Force Awakens. Um, it was super busy at the time. The guy that hired me was the post-production executive at, at Bad Robot, Ben Rosenblatt. And so I come in and, and, and my job, at, like that first week was all nights because the building was so busy that the equipment that you know I needed was not available during the day. So they were like, come in in the afternoon, you'll watch the movie to get up to speed on where we're at. And then, you know, by the time you're done watching the movie, the, like the day crew will, you know, gone and there'll be a computer, you know, available at night. So, um, but it's so busy that there actually isn't a single Avid that's available for the entire duration of the movie. So I keep getting moved from room to room to room. And finally, I end up watching the last like 45 minutes of the movie uh, in Mary Jo Markey's room after she's gone home for the day. And I'm sitting there and like, you know, faces like inches from the screen, you know, as um, uh, as Han Solo and Kylo Ren are facing off on that bridge with the chasm beneath it. Uh, and I like have sort of heard like a door open a couple of minutes ago, but I didn't really pay any attention to it. And there's tons of people that come in and out. And, you know, some of my friends um, who are the assistant editors on that, were, you know, came in and like checked on how everything was going a couple of times. So I like didn't really pay attention to it. And then... Uh, you know, Kylo kills Han and Han falls off that bridge and just like, like this fucking close to my ear, there's this voice that goes, wow, that's really fucked up. And I turn it as JJ <laughs> and, and JJ has been watching me watch his movie, you know, for who knows how long, um, which was even more terrifying because he didn't know I, I was in the building. And even though I'd worked on a bunch of bad robot stuff at that point, I hadn't really ever worked like one-on-one -on -one with him. So I was like the guy that he, like he knew that I was like around and like I was a person he'd seen before, but we hadn't really talked, you know, and here I am watching like, and even within bad robot, the ending of force awakens was not something that was like super widely known. Um, 
And so like, if you were going to talk about the movie at all, you had to do it inside of an office. You couldn't do it in the common areas, you know? So here I was like some dude he doesn't know, you know, for like, has never, hasn't seen working on this movie before, like in his editor's office, watching the end of his top secret movie, you know? And one of the things that, you know, is very endearing about JJ is like, rather than like coming in and stopping me being like, why are you here? You know, he was just like, he just, he just, he decided to, you know, to fuck with me instead. And, and, uh, it was terrifying and hilarious at the same time. Uh, that's an amazing story. Um, thank you for telling it. Um, going off of the Star Wars train, uh, sort of tangentially, uh, you worked as an associate editor on Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol, which was edited by Paul Hirsch, mm-hmm. who is a little editor who's worked on some indie films like Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back, um, among many Main John Hughes movies. Carrie. Mission Impossible One, you know, yeah, you you name it. Paul's work. What what was that experience like, and what was your role? Um, so associate editor is sort of a it's a it's a thank you credit. Um, my, my actual <laughs> title, um, my actual title was first assistant editor. Um, you know, which is a which is a big role, you know, in editorial. Um, but uh, associate editor is a is a credit that you can give to a member of the, your assistant editor team. You know, if they sort of go a little bit above and beyond, um, but they, it, it's not a union covered credit, unlike additional, like additional editor in order to get credited is that you have to be paid as an editor by the studio for a week. Um, and so if you, but you know, there, as an assistant editor, sometimes like editors will throw you scenes to cut in, um, you know, and you'll do some editing even though you are not actually, you know, that's not your primary job responsibility. And so associate editor is a way to, to sort of recognize, like, you were the, the first assistant editor, but you also, you know, helped out with some of the editing. Contributed a lot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's what that credit is about. Um, but, you know, working with Paul is, uh, it's it's just, it's, a, it's like working for, the, you know, the, like, world's best editing teacher every day. Um, you know, and it and it's not even like Paul is like calling you in and saying, "Look at this thing, and this is how I'm going to cut this." It's more just like you you're watching it happen, you know. And then if you you can, I mean, you can ask him whatever you want, but like you, if you ask him, um, you know, what he's doing or why he did that, you know, then you get into a deep conversation, uh, you know, about his his editing beliefs and his editing styles, and you know, there's just no way to work with him and not pick up you know, a lot of like very useful, um, techniques and knowledge and, and, um, perspectives. And, um, you know, I, I was just amazed also at how fast he is because he he does have a very particular way that he likes his material prepped. Um, and so the other assistants and I would spend, you know, half a day or whatever, getting the previous day's dailies prepped for him to cut. And then I, I was constantly running into the situation where I was not prepping it fast enough for how fast he could cut it, um, which, you know, it, which as an editor makes you sort of frustrated. Like you hit when you are in a groove and you're cutting something and you're done and you're ready to like cut the next batch of dailies and it's not ready for you yet. It's a frustrating thing. Um, so now being an editor, I, I, you know, I see that. But um, uh, yeah, he was I learned I learned a lot from him. Um, that I definitely took into cutting John Wick movies and to running an editorial department, you know, and um, his voice, some of his like Paul Hirschisms are, you know, are in my head, just floating around there, you know, at various moments. So you worked as an uh, animatic editor on Baby Driver and an assistant editor for Pan's Labyrinth. And we were just wondering about like what your job responsibilities were under these descriptions also i love baby driver so talk about that so baby driver um baby driver started with making a ripomatic i don't do you guys know what that is tell us yeah it's called a ripomatic um and when you are going when if you're a director and you're going into a studio meeting to pitch a movie that you want to direct and you want the studio to pay for um it's often helpful to go, Chad actually doesn't like doing this, but most directors do. Um, it's helpful to go into the room with a video that's sort of cut like a trailer um, 
for the movie that doesn't exist yet. And so in order to make that, you start ripping a bunch of other movies and movie scores uh, and cutting them together into trailer form, finding, you know, lines that are applicable from a bunch of other movies. And I've done this a, a few times before I did it on Baby Driver. And they're usually like, you know, two to three minutes, like normal trailer length. And maybe you've got, I don't know, 10 or 20 sources that you combine together. Um, and Baby Driver... Uh, that's what Edgar said that he wanted, and he his n- normal editors uh, are UK-based, and, and Edgar has a house here in LA, and that's where he was living and working out of at the time. So he wanted an LA editor that he could work with to make this thing. And um, I we had a couple of friends in common who connected us, and I showed him the thing that I'd done, and he's like, okay, yeah, yeah, great. I want something a little bit different. I was like, yeah, fine, whatever. And he sends me this list, and it's like gargantuan. Um, we ended up with at least 120 different sources plus plus some like youtube clips and like really obscure things that we had to go hunting down um and we created in order to pitch baby driver this mood reel which essentially took all the songs that were written into the script and made sort a ripomatic kind of for each one to try to to convey the feeling of the movie while that song was going to be playing so if it's like you know if it's um uh uh if it's you know uh, part of the heist you know then you know we play the song and we find a bunch of heist movies and and sort of tell the story of a heist you know or, or if it's like you know, if it's like baby falling in love, then, you know, then we'd play like whatever the song was written in that part of the script. We'd like get 30 seconds of that or whatever and, and uh, find movies that had the, the feeling of that sort of like youthful love. Um, and so we ended up cutting together like a 15 minute reel, um, which I think Edgar wanted because the concept of the movie was so tricky to describe that he needed as much as he could like he went in with not just the video that we made but a bunch of other you know a bunch of other materials that he had collected on his own and had other people create um but yeah this video was designed so you could watch it and understand that the movie was going to be set to music entirely all the way through and that these are the different emotions that he would be taking you through and this is sort of how the syncopation of actions to the um you know to the music would work um and so we did that and it was like involved Edgar, like coming over to my apartment, you know, for a couple months. Um, and then he pitched it a few different places. It finally got picked up at Sony. Um, I cut it together a couple other reels for him. And then once the movie was greenlit, then he started storyboarding and that's where the animatic editor title came in. So um, since it had been a fairly successful, you know, run up until that point and his other editors were still in the UK and still, I think, busy on other movies, um, I cut together 90% of the storyboards for the film. And those were like, they storyboarded everything. Even dialogue scenes were storyboarded. Um, and the tricky thing became that I got John Wick 2, like this was a long multi-year process and it. And I got John Wick 2 somewhere in the middle of it. Um, and so I went to New York to start cutting John Wick 2 while there were still storyboards flowing in for Baby Driver. And so there were, a couple there's like a couple of months where i was cutting dailies for john wick at the office during the day and then coming home and trying to bang out you know the next set of storyboards for edgar at night because i didn't want to like that was a scenario going back to what you were asking earlier where i was like i'm not gonna let and i'm not gonna have another editor unless it's you know unless it's paul Maclis. i'm not gonna have another editor come in and take this over you know until it's the editor of the film because i knew that you know that i wasn't going to be editing the actual film baby driver um and so I did, yeah, I, I did all the storyboards and put sound effects and everything to them. And they sent, went out to all the different department heads so that the department heads and the people working on it could get an idea of what the movie was going to be about and how it was going to be shot and what was important to think about as they were doing their jobs. Um, and then thankfully, Paul called one day, you know, I was like tearing my hair out because um, I desperately didn't want to let Edgar down, but I was also drowning in footage from John Wick. And so th- when the day that Paul called and was like, okay, I'm coming on the movie, you know, send me everything you've got. I'll take it from here. And thanks for everything. I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> and so they were in Atlanta. And so I FedExed in my, you know, my hard drive and my Avid project and everything that I'd ever done, you know, um, for Edgar for that movie. And, um, you know, and then that was, that was it. And then they invited me to, you know, to the premiere a couple of years later when, when it came out. 
What's the process of editing storyboards as you were just describing? Um, so it's mostly like you're editing a flip book together, mm. you know? So it's in these, in this case, we have the song and Edgar would, Edgar would send me the, you know, the storyboards and tell me the song to use and then say a minute and 10 seconds into the song, we have to be on storyboard number 50 and a minute and 40 seconds. We have to be at storyboard number 230. And then in between that, it was up to me to figure out how long each frame should last. Um, you know, how to give a sense of motion, how to get a sense of timing or of like tension or of a chase or, you know, whatever the, the needs happen to be. Um, and, but yeah, you're basically, you're cutting a flip book and then adding sound effects and music underneath it so that when you watch it, um, you can actually watch some of the storyboards that I cut on the Baby Driver DVD. Um, they're in the extras. Um, you, you know, you're trying to give a sense of, um, you know, uh, of timing uh, and of what, you know, what angles are working and not working. You know, an interesting exercise for me was watching the final film and realizing where I had been spot on in my timing and where I had been wildly off or where there were things that came up during production that nobody had anticipated that needed, you know, that necessitated a change, you know, from the animatics that I had cut. Um, and there was a good mixture. There was definitely, there's some sequences in the movie where I'm like, oh, this is like literally exactly the timing that I came up with in, in storyboards, um, you know, and I, I'm still waiting to sit down and have a coffee with Paul for a couple hours where he can tell me, you know, more in detail what was useful and what wasn't useful for him, you know, as he was getting the live action footage. Um, but then there were also, yeah, other sequences where I was like, oh, this is wildly different than we thought it would be. Um, and again, that's, those are the practicalities of production um, and of trying to guess all of this stuff in advance getting in the way. Backtracking a little bit to back to John Wick uh, two and three. Um, I have to ask what it was like cutting together the pencil scene and the knife fight and what that was like i mean the the knife fight is going to be on my demo reel for eternity um as it should as it should be i i can watch the knife fight like generally i don't tend to watch the movies that i've edited after they come out in theaters you know i like i'll see them opening weekend or with friends um and at some like sometimes there's they'll have like friends and family screenings where you can like get the cast and crew together sort of more privately than a premiere and watch it with a bunch of people that you know you care about um but after that i don't tend to watch them again because i i you know them so intimately there's no point in spending your time doing that really um and no desire but the night the knife fight is one where i'm like i i enjoy watching the knife fight um it's basically what you're seeing is almost exactly the first assembly um it just came together. There's the only section that we ended up um, changing a little bit was what we call the snowball fight, which is just when they're just chucking knives at each other, you know, furiously, and you can't even really keep track of how many knives there are. Um, that's actually a double action. So we, so Keanu chucks his knives at them and they chuck their knives at him. And then we switch to the reverse, you know, behind their shoulder. And they do the, if you're looking, it's actually, it's exactly the same choreography, um, but it's just repeated to make the, to extend the moment. So did they just add um, like CG blades or something like that? Yeah, most of the ni- most of the knives are are computer generated. All of the glass that you see, all the glass that breaks, that's all CG. Um, you know, they like a couple times they'd have a knife handle that had no blade, uh, and we would put a blade on it, um, like when he's stabbing the dude in the eye at the end. Um, and uh, um, there were cut like there was one take where they did throw a rubber axe at Roger, who's the guy that takes the last axe to the head. Um, which we didn't use. It was more, more of a reference for VFX as to like how an axe might fly, but they did hit him with it. Um, it sort of like bounced on the floor and smacked into his face. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, pretty much, you know, everything that's sharp. If you're doing action like this, every anything that's sharp is going to be CG. Uh, you were credited uh, working in the special effects department on Jurassic Park 3, and I love that movie, and I thought I would ask what that was all about. So all of those like, early credits are from my days at Stan Winston's. Um, it's, it's cheating a little bit because when I, you know, when I started looking for assistant editor work, I had a resume that had all of these credits on it. Um, but you get the credit just by being in the building when the company works on the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not like I went, like I didn't go to the Jurassic Park three set. I was just on the team 
at Stan Winston Studio, responsible for keeping the studio running while other people made the dinosaurs and puppeteered them and went to set to work on it. Um, so, uh, yeah, the, you know, I, it's it, it's certainly fun to be at Stan's when they're working on a Jurassic Park movie. Um, and, uh, you know, I think AI is one of the movies that, that sticks out most is like the the creativity that was on display as they were putting that movie, you know, all the robots for that movie together. Um, you know, and I actually did get to like help do some soldering on that. Um, the, that stands out, but I don't have like a Jurassic park three story. Um, because yeah, that, that credit is for, for attendance and not really for like work done. Yeah. I was going to ask about AI. You're credited as the Mecca electronic controller. Is that what you meant by the, the, the soldering? Um, Am I real? <laughs> I actually forgot what I, what I am credited as. Um, yeah, I guess that that would be pretty close. I I, <laughs> I soldered some wires. I soldered some multicolor LEDs into the cheek skin of a robot that was one of two choices for Steven Spielberg to pick, and he chose the other one. So the work that I did was actually not seen in the movie. Um, <laughs> but uh, actually, I was it was like my freshman year of college. I grabbed a buddy from my dorm um, because it was just, it was one of those all hands on deck weekends at Stan Winston's. And they were like, do you know anybody who can solder? Bring them over. And, and so like, you know, they paid us and well, I was already on the job, but they paid him. And, uh, uh, you know, and we, yeah, we spent a weekend, you know, twisting wires together and soldering LEDs into place. Um, it was, uh, yeah, it was good. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, one of, one of the questions I just sort of spontaneously have is, are, is, are there any examples where um, you, in in editorial, decided to make a choice that was completely different or kind of altering what was on the page, um, and like how how that came up, how that sort of would have come about, and if if you have instances yeah. like that? Yeah, I mean that that those happen all the time. Um, they'll often happen. Uh, the ideas will happen during the assembly phase, but the execution of them can be delayed because one of the things is that even if I know, like, I'm going to cut a scene or the scene, you know, if I know a scene needs to be cut, uh, I still have to sh cut it together and show it to the director so that they can agree that the scene needs to be cut. Um, and so these things are all, you know, they're all, it's all a conversation and a collaboration. Um, you know, I would say that, like, on WIC 2, we the like guns suits and maps montage um was not a montage in the script it was just you know a bunch of scenes of keanu going to different places and having full like a full conversation and then leaving that place and going to the next place and getting his suit and leaving that place and going to the next place and getting his map and it was you know 15 minutes of him walking around rome and it was one of the dullest things and i that was one of the things where like i chad and i hadn't really talked about it but i i knew that i was just deathly bored during that sequence and there's just no way that that could survive in that form and so the like first week of the director's cut i was like i need like three days to work on something to show you and just you know leave me alone during that time and i'll call you when i've got something you know to present uh and i mean it was sort of that was one of those things where when i presented it i was like okay i know this wasn't in your plan at all but i think we really need to like turn these three scenes into something much shorter um you know the minute he saw it he's sort of like sits he, he'll sit down on the couch and he'll like think of all the different scenarios that i might not have thought of and then ultimately come back and be like no okay yeah you're right this is the way it needs to be you know proceed um so we'll uh we'll start wrapping up uh we like to ask all of our guests how you know, the coronavirus and the quarantine has affected your ability to work and how quarantine has been treating you anyway. Um, strangely, I actually started working on a movie right when LA went into lockdown um, and I wrapped it two weeks ago. Uh, it's called Nobody. Um, it's uh, an, an action movie starring Bob Odenkirk. Whoa. Um, and, and, uh, yeah, it was uh, it was great. I uh, I jumped onto it again. It was like a movie that I came on, you know, partway through post. Um, so I jumped onto it in early March, and I was able to cut from home, um, you know, almost the entire time up until we went to the final mix. 
and then when we needed to mix that was we started mixing in early july and then i did have to go to the universal lot you know every day for about three weeks um and they there were 10 of us including the we were doing final mixing and color correction so including the mixers and the colorists and the music editor and the director and everything you know there were about 10 of us um and they tested us twice um just you know as a precaution over the course of those three weeks um and you know everybody wore a mask all the time and you know there's tons of hand sanitizer everywhere and um you know so it felt as safe as it could be you know there's risk in everything and you're always aware of that but um you know we came out of it we came out of it okay and nobody nobody got sick during or after you know the process that i know of so um it turned out okay and now uh i have a three-year-old and a five-year-old my five-year-old is supposed to start kindergarten next week but it's going to be all virtual and now that i'm unemployed um i'm assuming i'm going to be helping you know teach kindergarten um but yeah for the most part my days right now are are keeping the kids busy. Um, my mother-in-law takes them twice a week, which is how I'm able to have this uninterrupted interview. Um, <laughs> but uh, they, uh, they, yeah, the rest of the time is, you know, going to the park and kicking a soccer ball around with them or, you know, trying to set them up with art projects and things like that. That's great. Um, Trent, do you have any more questions you got? or? No, I think that's it for me. You've uh, been a wonderful guest. We really appreciate you coming on and giving us your time. That was Evan Schiff, uh, who worked on Birds of Prey, John Wick 2 and 3, among many other great films that you should all check out. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. So that was our interview with the Birds of Prey or the Fantabulous Emancipation of the One Harley Quinn editor, Evan Schiff. Thank you. Well, co-editor. I don't want to take credit away from another talented editor, but... Um, Thank you, Evan Schiff, for coming on. It was an absolute pleasure. You were very nice. So, Parth, what comes next for this uh, little program? Does this podcast continue much further, or is this the end for us? I think we have a future. Um, next week we're going to be discussing our own feelings on the film and we shall reveal who our next guest is um, for the next two weeks so make sure to catch our next episode stay tuned foolios alright well that was a great interview see you guys next week